Welcome to Aquafarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, coming to you too from my office here at the Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is the, uh, uh, the chief supporter uh, of, uh, of this Oncology Pharmacy podcast. Today we're getting back to our foundations and Oncology Pharmacy series. This is where we go through and talk about the bread and butter chemotherapy drugs that, that we use on a daily basis. So we've talked about methotrexate and doxorubicin and cytarabine. Um, and now we're going to talk about paclitaxel. And the alias is a paclitaxel. It's really just the brand name, Taxol. Although, interestingly enough, if you go uh, into a deep dive in the history, you'll learn that Taxol was the first name of this drug, uh, named by the laboratory who first founded this based off of... Uh, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. This, this segue, segue is a nice segue into the history of Paclitaxel, which begins in 1962 in a forest somewhere in Washington. Little backstory: The United States Department of Agriculture was under contract from the National Cancer Institute to basically provide uh, samples of natural products for the National Cancer Institute to comb through to look for activity. Uh, this is kind of like the plot from the movie Medicine Man, starring Sean Connery from some years ago. Uh, so, in 1962, this guy named Barclay and three students on a field trip go traipsing through. Uh, this forest in Washington, and it is the uh, Gifford uh, Pinchot, P-I-N-C-H-O-T, so I think Pinchot, Gifford Pinchot National Forest uh, near Parkland, Washington, uh, where they encounter uh, a Pacific U, uh, which is uh, in the conifer family, so, you know, a relative of a, of a pine tree, uh, and the actual name of the Pacific U is Taxus brevifolia, like Taxus brief foliage, I guess, brevifolia. Um, so in, anyway, they provide the NCI with uh, bark as well as twigs, berry leaf, whatever else from the plant. But the bark is important here uh, because um, from the bark is where they actually able to find this compound that had some anti-cancer activity in like leukemia models. Um, now, it took them four years from when they got the bark to kind of find something that was there. Uh, and unfortunately... Uh, the yield of paclitaxel from bark was 0.004%. Uh, so then in 1966, uh, the NCI requested the USDA to provide them with, uh, with 375 pounds uh, as opposed to the original 25 pounds of material they had to try to get some more to really study it in a better way. Uh, at this time, they really didn't know the mechanism. Uh, they didn't know what it looked like. Uh, they didn't know a whole lot about it at all. Uh, and the first, uh, 1971, is the first publication in PubMed that you'll find about paclitaxel in the, the Journal of the American Chemical Society, basically saying this compound from this tree has activity uh, in, against cancer in, in the laboratory. Um, in 1978, you see the first um, hypothesis about how it works as a mitotic cell spingle, and in the Nature publication, the journal Nature in 1979, uh, we see uh, the kind of the best description early on of how the drug works, which we'll come to later. Um, now there were some some speed bumps along the way in getting paclitaxel um, to be studied. First, let's talk about the fact that there were like you know thousands of compounds they had to comb through to, to find something that was uh, you know active against cancer from this tree. So it was really hard to extract this drug. Really difficult to uh, to you know to to purify it so that you could test it. 
um, based on that 0.004 uh, yield rate. So uh, one uh, fine young chemist um, was able to isolate a precursor of paclitaxel from the common yew tree, which is the taxis baccata, because with a 0.004% yield rate, the Pacific yew, which you probably saw a picture of that tree uh, or a tree that was comes up on Google Images under Pacific yew, uh, in like your pharmacology class, you couldn't just take down this the whole forest uh, in, in Washington. And I actually have a map I'm looking at right now, which is the distribution of Pacific yew. And it's, qu it's quite limited to Northern California, uh, Washington, Oregon, into um, British Columbia, and maybe in Southern Alaska. And there's a little bit in the, the top part of Idaho there. So you just couldn't cut down all this national forest. And there's actually uh, a book written about this whole topic. And I'm going to give this to you so you can go uh, and nerd out. It's called The Story of Taxol, Nature and Politics in the Pursuit of an Anti-Cancer Drug by Jay Goodman and V. Walsh, University of Manchester, UK, Cambridge University Press. Uh, you can buy it. It's out there. Um, so there were some politics involved in this because this was found on a national forest. Uh, it was isolated um, by chemists and, and scientists working for the federal government and the NCI. Um, and, you know, there was uh, an alternate universe, perhaps, where you're cutting down all kinds of Pacific yew trees to get just bits and pieces of paclitaxel. But fortunately, uh, the, uh, a precursor was isolated from the common yew tree, which was much more common, uh, Taxus baccata, or the European yew. And then with the precursor, it was a lot easier than to take a precursor and take the next further step in the lab to make it actually paclitaxel, which is why it's a semi-synthetic uh, drug. Another problem was that uh, paclitaxel is really hard to get into solution. It's not very soluble. Uh, it was determined that it was had you know really good solubility in 75% polyethylene glycol. Unfortunately, in that formulation, the drug was less active against peritoneal carcinoma cells um, than, than just pure base, apparently. So uh, eventually, researchers figured out that a 5 to 5 to 90 concentration of uh, paclitaxel in five parts ethanol to five parts cremophore, which we'll talk about in some detail later, and then 90% or 90 parts saline provided stability and also retained the activity of paclitaxel. So paclitaxel has to come from the tree and then it takes from a different, not from the Pacific U, but from a different uh, U tree, then further synthesized and then put in this cremophore vehicle to be able to be stable. And now at that point, we can start testing this in patients. And in 1984, it enters clinical trials. Um, so first in human studies. By 1992, it's FDA approved for ovarian cancer. And then by 1994, it gets approved for breast cancer. Uh, and I just um, want to read uh, a quick uh, a quick statement here from, uh, this is from, from page 51 in the story of Taxol. There seems to be no particular reason why Barclay sampled Taxus brevifolia. So there were no, you know, go look at that tree, go look at that tree, or maybe there were, but there was nothing specific about this tree uh, that said, oh, we have to sample Taxus brevifolia. Uh, we have to get samples that back to the NCI. They were just looking for any samples they could find, and just so happens they found this specific yew tree. And if you want to kind of um, combine your love of oncology pharmacy, maybe an interest in history along with the outdoors, you can go to the uh, Gifford Pinchot National Forest uh, near Parkland, Washington to the La Wiss Wiss Campground. And there is a historical marker there uh, commemorating 
um, the first samples from the Pacific U that led to the discovery of Paclitaxel. And you can get your picture taken with it. Please do that. Take a picture of it and send it to me. Put it on Facebook or put it on, on Twitter so we can see this. Uh, I'm going to have to make a pilgrimage, pilgrim, cr pilgrimage to this uh, to this site to see this um, if I can ever get out to, to Washington State. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tweet out a, a link to this so you can see the picture itself, which comes from... Um, Volume 38, number three of the newsletter from the American Society of Phar Pharmacognosy. All right, let's talk about the mechanism of action of paclitaxel. So paclitaxel promotes microtubule assembly and then stabilizes that process, thereby preventing disassembly. And that leads to mitotic cell arrest uh, or M phase arrest. So the way that I think about this, especially when you think back to the vinca alkaloids, how they prevent microtubule assembly, Paclitaxel promotes and then paralyzes the microtubule process. So it promotes the assembly, but then freezes it in place, paralyzes it. So that's kind of my mnemonic for remember that. Paclitaxel promotes, then paralyzes, whereas vinca alkaloids uh, prevent assembly in the first place. Uh, so this is a used and FDA approved for ovarian cancer, breast cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. Those are the main uses. It's also approved for Kaposi sarcoma, the AIDS-defining illness. Uh, now, here are, here are a list of other uses, and I say these are lesser uses, meaning this is not the first-line therapy, but maybe second, third-line therapy. You'll see potentially paclitaxel used for cervical, endometrial cancer, head and neck cancer, uh, esophageal or gastric cancers, testicular cancer, and probably some others as well. Uh, interestingly, some of the first proof of activity of this drug as, uh, as an antineoplastic were in leukemia cell models, and we don't use it in leukemias or lymphomas. Um, and I don't actually know why that is, but it would be probably pretty toxic to combine paclitaxel and vincristine, both drugs that have neuropathy in uh, a combination chemotherapy regimen. Uh, the dosing of this typical dose, I would say, is 175 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. Uh, 200 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks is, is one of the original doses for non-small cell lung cancer. There's also 225 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks, but that's given over four hours. Your classic carboplatin paclitaxel dose that you probably see in clinic is 175 milligrams per meter squared infused over three hours. There are also weekly doses. Um, so 80 milligrams per meter squared given IV once a week is what you, exp what you would see in the adjuvant setting for, for weekly uh, paclitaxel for breast cancer. There's also 45 and 50 milligrams per meter squared along with radiation and, and weekly carboplatin for, um, for lung cancer. Moving on into the toxicity, so myelosuppression as we would expect uh, for any antineoplastic, any drug that works on rapidly dividing cells. and um, so the myelosuppression is greater with the 24-hour infusion of paclitaxel, which is one of the reasons we don't give it via 24 hours anymore, besides the logistics of doing that, in a, in, at least in the American healthcare system that is primarily outpatient-based as far as uh, chemotherapy administration. And the myelosuppression is less if it's given in a weekly regimen versus every three weeks. Uh, neuropathy is, is probably... Um, uh, so I think technically the dose limiting toxicity is, is neutropenia, really. Um, not just myelosuppression, but neutropenia. And then neuropathy as well as dose limiting to a lot of patients. Uh, and the neuropathy seems to be worse just by a little bit with weekly administration as compared to every three-week administration. You can also see hypersensitivity reactions to this pharmaceutical product. 
And, and I intentionally didn't say that you can see hypersensitive reactions to paclitaxel. It's really uh, the diluent, cremophore, uh, which is a brand name for uh, polyoxalated castor oil. That's right, castor oil. Paclitaxel contains castor oil. It's cremophore vehicle. That's really what causes the hypersensitivity reactions. And for that reason, you got to do two special things with paclitaxel. One, pre-medication. The other, a special line and filter set. So they need to be pre-medicated with uh, H1 receptor antagonists like diphenhydramine, and H2 receptor antagonists like famotidine uh, or ranitidine, and then dexamethasone as well. And the dex dosing varies by institution and a little bit by indication. You have all the indications in uh, prostate cancer indication dosing of dexamethasone, which I won't get into the details of that because a lot of centers uh, do their own thing with the dexamethasone dosing, especially for weekly paclitaxel. Um, it also, uh, so you have to have those three pre-meds to decrease the risk of infusion reactions. And then because of this cremophore vehicle, uh, the drug has to be infused via uh, a non-PVC uh, line and, and set that has a 0.22 micron filter. And because of the, the cremophore and this castor oil derivative, because it's so lipophilic, it can actually pull out or leach DHEP, D-H-E-P. It can pull that DHEP out of PVC lining or PVC bags, and DHEP is a toxic plasticizer. So you have to use a non-PVC line with um, conventional paclitaxel. Uh, it's also uh, a mild vesicant. Uh, it's a, so upon extrapolation, paclitaxel has, quote, vesicant-like properties. Um, so we talked about with um, in the past with anthracyclines, because anthracyclines are doxorubicin is red, you treat the extrapolation with cold. Uh, with vincas, you use a warm compress and a hyaluronidase. With taxanes and paclitaxel, there are conflicting case reports about using warm and cold compresses, uh, but hyaluronidase could be used as well. Uh, to help open up uh, that connective tissue and allow any drug that's extravasated to get back into the bloodstream uh, and away from um, the peripheral tissue. There are a couple really just interesting drug interactions to, to note here. Um, so doxorubicin uh, clearances decrease 32% when it's given after paclitaxel, so we don't give those uh, in that order if you were to give them together. Uh, and that and cisplatin decreases the paclitaxel clearance by 33%. So if you're doing like a cisplatin paclitaxel regimen, the paclitaxel is given first, followed by your cisplatin. Uh, it's a 3-4 and 2C8 substrate. So in theory, there are drug interactions with inhibitors of that. But if you go through PubMed and you search paclitaxel itraconazole, you don't find interactions saying there's, there's all kinds of toxicity. Same thing with amiodarone or, or gemfibrozil. Um, so the drug's been around long enough that if there were really serious uh, drug interactions, we probably would know it by now. Um, but certainly I would try to, to, to avoid those, those uh, sit-mediated interactions wherever you could. So that's paclitaxel. It's a good drug. Uh, I didn't talk about this as well as a toxicity, but Taxol syndrome is uh, this kind of vague side effect that, that patients describe uh, fairly commonly after administration. Um, and it produces a lot of arthralgias and myalgias, and a lot of the current evidence suggests that this taxol syndrome, these arthralgias, myalgias, are a kind of an alternate manifestation of, of the neuropathy, the peripheral neuropathy you see uh, with taxanes. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, and again, you could see the mucositis not horrible with paclitaxel, uh, nausea and vomiting not horribly emetogenic as well either. So those are the main toxicities that, that I went over. Um, 
so that's that's your uh, you know your 10 to 15 minutes on paclitaxel, the nuts and bolts, the the things that I think you absolutely would have to know about this drug uh, for a, a basic learner. So that's paclitaxel or taxol. Um, thanks for listening to Oncofarm. Find us and like us, uh, rate us five stars, please, and give us a nice review uh, in the App Store. And uh, follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib and follow the show at OncoFarmPod. Please post those pictures with the Paclitaxel and Pacific U founding uh, commemorative plaque in, in Washington State. Please do that for me. Somebody, somebody do that uh, and send that to the OncoFarm family. Uh, thanks for listening. And I, as always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.